HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Thank you so much for oh. tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> Charlie and I are in studio looking deep into each other's eyes, really situating kind of post, uh, you know, little vacay for Connecting. you, a little bit of sleepy morning for me. You, of course, are listening to the Farm Report. I am one of your hosts, Aaron Fairbanks. And I'm Charlie Comer. <laughs> And we have a jam-packed show today, so let's get into it. Absolutely. Um, Well, we're really excited to be joined on the phone today by Greg Wade and Will Travis. Greg is the head baker at Publican Quality Bread in Chicago. He collaborates with chefs, farmers, retailers, and all sorts of people in the agricultural community to develop breads using heritage grain varieties and traditional fermentation techniques. And Will is an eighth-generation farmer at Spence Farm in Fairbury, Illinois. And there he grows with his father, Marty, and his wife, Chris. They raise a large variety of products. They raise fruits, vegetables, Dexter cattle, and small grains. And since 2003, they've been marketing directly to restaurants uh, a large variety of specialty grains. So thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. I have to say, I'm like eighth generation and in Illinois. You must be part of a pretty small club. <laughs> there's there's uh, a couple of us around here. There's one about an hour south that they got, I think, they settled their farm two years before us. <laughs> wow. Wow. What year is that? I mean, just for people who don't do math very well. Uh, our farm was settled in 1830, November of 1830. Oh, wow, damn. Kudos to you. (laughs) 
Um, well, we're really excited to hear about your collaboration and how uh, the culinary industry and farming can work together in promoting biodiversity and grains. And um, we'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, your background and how you guys got started. So, Greg, maybe you could start out telling us about your breads. Uh, well, at uh, Publican Quality Bread here, we uh, we focus on natural fermentation and uh, obviously local farms, whole grains, featuring most of our grains from Spence Farms. Um, most of our breads see a 60-hour fermentation. Um, you get a whole ton of good benefits out of that. First and foremost, it's really tasty. Um, you get a lot of organic acid development and things like that from uh, from a long fermentation like that. Um, and then on top of that, it's it's uh, it's actually really a, a healthy process. You know, you're getting a lot of um, starch breakdown. You're getting a lot of protein breakdown. You're getting um, some enzyme activity, which allows you to um, actually absorb all of the nutrients in a, a, a food product, um, uh, which is pretty unique um, from the sourdough starter. And um, really, the kind of the, the natural sourcing of our ingredients. Um, uh, also plays into the the health benefits of it, so we can kind of get this into this a little bit later. But the um, uh, the uh, heritage varieties of wheat that we use, and the uh, and the farming practices that um, that uh, Will uses, is um, much much healthier for us as people, and um, it doesn't uh, have any like chemicals or um, you know nasty stuff on it. So it, it's really kind of a, a much more natural process that's actually healthy for you. So, all right. So I'm sold, but why, so why is everyone not making bread like this? What, what, what's the, like, uh, what's the, what's the reason that, uh, this isn't kind of all the bread we eat? Um, well, it's, it's, uh, it just, it takes a lot of time, you know, 60 hours is, is a fair amount of time to devote to making a loaf of bread. Don't you think? Yes. You know, so, <laughs> so, um, really, uh, uh, I think that that time is is a big factor of it, and it's I think just a little bit intimidating for people to, you know, take care of a sourdough starter and to um, devote that amount of time to it, and uh, just really practice um, the craft. You know, like everyone's first loaf of bread is almost inevitably, you know, flat and doesn't taste very good, and it's just it's just a hard process to kind of get the inner workings of right away. Um, so I think that it's it's just kind of daunting for people. Uh, as far as why it's not a, a large-scale bakery operation, um, the, the the dough that we use or the dough that we make um, really does not work well with mechanization. So um, we don't like you know we don't use uh, baguette formers, we don't use uh, divider rounders or anything like that. Uh, everything is hand shaped, and that's uh, a really labor-intensive process. So for these bakeries that are mass-producing sandwich pan loaves and things like that for butternut or, you know, bunny bread or whatever it is. Um, it, that, that all is just mostly machines. Um, so it's, it's, really, uh, it's really not effective for a large-scale bakery operation. You know, you have to have it big enough that it's successful but small enough that, it's, that you're able to still do everything by hand. Yeah, I had a, a girlfriend who uh, was a new friend of mine, and, and I didn't know her that well. I was like, oh, do you have, I mean, do you have kids? Do you have any animals? And she's like, I have a Levon. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, it was so out of context. It like took me a minute. I'm like, do you, I mean, like the starter? <laughs> she's like, what, you got to feed it every couple of days, take care of it. Um, I think, too, thinking about like a 60-hour fermentation, um, just also kind of space, you know, space to like hold, just like literally let the bread dough chill. Right. Um, awesome. 
Well, and so I guess we'll ask the same question of Will. Um, we want to hear a little bit more about the varieties of grain that you're growing and how you've found them and developed them, and why isn't you know why isn't everybody growing these variety? <laughs> so a few years ago, we got started. We had just been doing uh, some winter soft red winter wheat varieties. Just nothing, nothing special really, because that's mainly what's grown in this area. Is the soft red winter wheat, um, and it doesn't work quite so well with the bread uh, programs, and we started working with Greg a little bit and looking into what might work better with the bread programs, and it seemed like the hard hard wheats, spring wheats would be better, um, and, you know, everyone around here is like, well, you can't grow spring wheat in Illinois. Well, we've been doing it for probably, what, five, eight years now, Greg, and yeah. seems to be working pretty well for us. So um, we've got probably uh, two or three different varieties of spring wheats that we do, and we also do a few varieties of winter wheat as well as a rye, um, some sorghum, millet, oats, and a few, probably three or four different varieties of corn that we do as well. So it's a real mix. Um, One of the things I think is interesting when you think about making bread, obviously you have very few kind of ingredients, right? You have your your yeast or your starter culture, water, flour, and then maybe some, you know, maybe a little something else. Um, But one of the things that I feel like people really think about flour as being kind of this inert um, substance that is kind of a blank slate. And I'm wondering... If you could talk a little bit, um, Greg, about working with these flowers and kind of dealing with something that is alive, whereas the baker, you're really looking to show the grain um, versus kind of force your will over the grain. Right. Well, so uh, that's one of the things that I absolutely fell in love with starting to work with these heritage varieties of grain is that, uh, and working with, uh, with, uh, with Will is that uh, it's, um, you know, we were able to select varieties uh not only for what works on the farm, but what works in the bakery. Um, and what I'm most interested in is not only, like, baking quality and how, you know, light and fluffy and, and things like that we can make the bread, but also uh, flavor. You know, all these all these uh, modern variety of wheats that are grown on factory farms are, are grown for yield and for uh, ease of harvest and things like that. And uh, flavor is, is the bottom of the list, or even if it's talked about at all. Um, so for for us, you know, picking something that actually tastes good um, is uh, is pretty much top of the list, um, and then uh, also making sure that it works for the farm. And one thing that we really noticed when we started making bread out of these things is that one thing I like to do is we'll take the whole milled grains and uh, mix them just with water, usually equal parts flour by water by weight, and um, we. Um, uh, we just let that sit overnight, and then uh, the grains that we got from the farm always start fermenting naturally over that, you know, 18 hour, 24 hour process. And you can know you can smell it. You know, it's really aromatic. It's really nutty. It's really uh, um, kind of spicy sometimes with the rye. And you can do the same thing with a commercial commodity store bought uh, grain, and it just it is uh, flavorless and lifeless, and um, it just kind of smells like cardboard. So. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was just kind of remarkable when we first started doing that. You're like, wow, this these things can actually have have life to them. Right, right. 
Well, I wonder, um, you know, we are really lucky here in the Northeast, uh, especially when it comes to grain, uh, Grow NYC, which runs the green market system and, and some other environmental programs here in New York City, has really focused on our kind of regional grain shed for the last couple of years. A lot of that work really stewarded by a woman named June Russell. And one of the interesting things um, about June's work is you know, how many people are involved in, uh, I'm going to use the word grain economy, because um, you have the growers and the millers and the distributors malters. and the malters, because a lot of it goes into beverages. And then, you know, people on your end, Greg, who are, are baking with the flour and baking with the grains and figuring out kind of what's the best application for different things. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit, I would I'd love to hear from each of you actually, and what is the kind of infrastructure right now in your area to support this type of work? Are you feeling like this is a movement that's picking up steam and there are more people coming into this space? And, and like, what's it going to ideally look like over the next couple of years? Um, well, maybe we'll start with you because, you know, you're, at, you're closer to the beginning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what we see is there is becoming more of a movement toward growing the small grains and it's an easy way for the big conventional farmers to transition into doing uh, either organic or transitional organic or just heading towards the food market itself and getting out of doing the corn and soybeans. Um, it's a lot easier transitioning to doing small grains than it is to doing, you know, 100 acres of tomatoes or something like that. They, they've already got the equipment to be able to do it. Um, we also have... Um, we have about an hour from us a commercial mill being um, built and it will be we work with them quite a lot and uh, they'll be milling transitional organic and organic grains in there as well Um, I think that's still supposed to be a stone mill though right well not not a a roller they yeah right exactly they they have um It'll be a, a stone mill. It's kind of a it's it's a kind of stone mill, I guess. It's not really a granite stone or whatever, but it's kind of like a composite. But um, they're they're going to be set up to do you know large quantities. When you know we you look at us and we can mill maybe 200 pounds an hour, and they can mill 200 pounds in five or ten minutes. So. Um, how has your farming community gotten to the scale, you know, where there's enough enough grain to go through a mill like that? And what was the initially, you know, you've been doing this for since 2003. What was the reception of your, you know, your farming neighbors when you first started doing some of I know in, on your site, you say that you farm in wild and weird ways. So, <laughs> yeah, we uh, when we first got started, actually, you know, we, we really didn't start getting into the grains until probably. It might be 10 years ago now, but uh, when we first got started, it was mainly into wild harvested stuff out of our timber and our cousin's timber and then in doing uh, produce. Um, And, you know, we're good friends with a lot of our surrounding neighbors and everything, and everyone thought, well, that's a lot of work. I don't want to do that, but more power to you guys for doing it. So, um, and there was was quite a lot of buy-in. In the very beginning from the grocery store in town too they they wanted to have product from us and the other farms that we were working with in the store there and there was a lot of buy-in from the community to buy that stuff as well and it's 
it's we've kind of recharged that in the last year or two and it's growing again here in in the local community um, of actually selling stuff in the grocery store again but I'd say that the the local you know our neighbors and everyone around us it's still you know they think it's interesting and there are a few that are transitioning to do this type of stuff uh, of the big guys there's a lot more small families getting into it than there is the the big conventional farmers we do have a few conventional farmers that are switching over but um, generally a lot of them just think man that's a lot of work yeah, well, I think there's like something kind of exciting about, you know, proving, you know, proving the market. And especially in the U.S., when you really think about the bulk of what we're growing, I mean, it is in the green space. You're looking at the soy, soy and corn and wheat. And I think we got to kind of deal with the realities of of most of the food, most of the calories we're producing are, are in that space. So I think it's nice to see some of this uh activity happening in like small ways and reaching like tentacles out to just say like, Hey, you know, there's some other options or a space if you're interested in even, you know, transitioning a smaller parcel of your land. Right. Have you been involved at all in seed exchanges or a variety development? There's a group, um, that the small farm educator with the university of Illinois extension, uh, he started, called the Grand Prairie Grain Guild um, here, and we have done a few seed trials with him um, for some different corns and some different wheats, um, but he's got, his name is Bill Davison, he's got a huge group of people in the area here um, throughout central Illinois and even throughout the Midwest here that are doing seed trials all over uh probably a couple hundred different varieties of stuff that I, I would imagine. Wow. Greg, on the on the kind of consumer-facing side, I, I mean, you know, you've talked about the process that you're using to make the breads, which it involves a lot of, like, you know, time, time, but also, like, you know, essentially, like, manpower, hand-shaping the loaves. Um, how, how do you kind of translate that value to your customers? I mean, especially, I think, too, when people are kind of used to bread costing, you know, a couple of bucks. I mean, I guess yours goes for a little bit more. Um, but that kind of story around you know, why we should be paying more for better bread. Uh, well, I think that, you know, to, um, to relate to that, all, all you really got to do is tell the story, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you tell, you tell the story of, uh, of, of Will down on the farm and, you know, him and his family have to have to be successful. And then you've got... Uh, actually, um, we're lucky enough to have him milling and delivering as well, um, so we're able to keep the cost down a little bit that way. Because you know, if you were to send it to, um, you know, a commercial mill or something like that, then he's got a value-added step, and he's got to make money. And then you've got to go to the distributor, and then he's got to make money. Um, but uh, really, just you know, you tell the story. You know, you tell the story of of this is. Um, uh, you know, a heritage-raised grain, um, a lot goes into it. Uh, there's the tons of work prepping the fields each year, and, you know, you're subsequently um, trying to, like, plan your uh, your crop rotations and making sure that your soils are healthy and, and things like that. Um, and then uh, really just the time and the care that we all take all across the way um, between uh, Will on the farm and then us at the bakery, uh, you just tell that story, and most people are, are really receptive to it. Um, it's not we're, not we're not prohibitively expensive, I don't think. 
Um, but we just want to make sure that everyone knows the value of all of the hard work that all of us are doing. Of course, it tastes good, too. <laughs> well, yeah, it helps, helps that it tastes great. <laughs> Well, that's a that's a great reminder too. Speaking of telling your story, that um, there's a recently released documentary about your work um, called Sustainable, and it can be it's uh, ju- was just released on Netflix, and it can also there's a site for it, sustainablefoodfilm.com. So um, we really appreciate uh, Will and Greg you taking time to speak to us today and tell your story, and uh, we hope our our listeners will. Uh, go ahead and watch this uh, film on, so they can learn more. A little sustainable Netflix and chill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, thanks so much. We are going to take a short break, and we have another guest coming back for the second half of the show. So stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. We're going to hear a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts of the seed, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The endosperm is the main energy storage unit of the seed. That's where the growing plant gets its energy before it can start photosynthesizing and making its own. It makes up a huge portion of the grain, about 83%, and it's the main source that's used for white flour. When you make white flour, you get rid of the germ and the bran and just have the white endosperm left. It contains almost all the carbohydrates. It also contains protein and iron and some of the other B vitamins as well. It's kind of what you classically think of when you're thinking of flour. So all that's there when you're milling with whole grains. But when you mill with whole grains, you also get the bran, which is the kind of roughage and gives that, that's what gives that that kind of color to it. Also gives you extra fiber that uh, helps you to be regular. And you also get the germ, which adds the fat and the flavor, which we all like from whole grains. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Charlie and I are like not up on the transitions today, but guys, bear with us because we have um, more good uh, fermenty talk. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're we're moving from grain to grapes, and um, we're very excited to be joined in the studio by Chad Hendrickson. Uh, Chad is from Lakewood Vineyards in beautiful Watkins Glen, New York, uh, on Seneca Lake. <laughs> Hi, Chad. Good morning, everybody. I feel like those like what the Western New York names sometimes give you like a little. Little bit of a run for your money. <laughs> um, well, Chad, could you tell us some about Lakewood? Yeah, sure. Uh, Lakewood Vineyards. Um, we have been a winery since 1988. Um, we've been growing grapes in the area for 53 years, so they're a pretty established winery. We um, we actually we only interview people here who've been farming since the 1800s. Yes, it's a new rule. Um, well, 2017. <laughs> Um, we are a moderately sized winery, but, uh, um, we're not too big. We're not too small. I think we're, we're, we're positioned right for the area. We produce around 45,000 cases of wine a year. Um, 
we produce both vinifera, i.e. European grapes, and native grapes to the area, uh, Labrusca grapes, and uh, hybrid grapes, all into wine. So um, our main wines are Riesling. Um, we produce four different distinct styles of Riesling, um, Cabernet Franc, Pinot Noir. But then we make some sweeter wines as well that, that really uh, appeal to a, a pretty broad market. So we're excited to, to help out on both ends there. So. That's great. Um, well, it's it's March, but it's a sunny day here in Brooklyn. So I guess we're starting to think about uh, getting out of the city. <laughs> um, some folks are probably thinking about summer and traveling and uh, making some visits. So could you tell us a little bit more about either just the, the region, um, visiting vineyards in the Finger Lakes or any events you guys do? At yeah, sure. Um, so... You know, the Finger Lakes is actually a, a, a series of lakes. It's 11 lakes total. Um, for the wine region, there's three main lakes. There's Cuca, Seneca, and Cayuga, um, starting west, going east. Um, Seneca is probably the lake that has the largest amount of wineries. It's the deepest of the lakes. Um, Cayuga and Cuca both, though, have uh, a really good representation in the wine industry. So um, if you come to our area and you're interested in wines, you're you're really going to love it. Um, there's over 100 wineries in the Finger Lakes alone. Um, there's a, a slew of wonderful restaurants. We have events in the season every single weekend. So pretty much from the beginning of June through October, there is something to do in the Finger Lakes every single day, every single evening, every single weekend. So it's a great place to come. It's affordable. It's the the vistas are never ending. Um, I don't know. I can't sold, speak high enough about it. Sold, sold. I'm like <laughs> I'm like pulling up my phone to book a ticket now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really it's a great place to go. Um, Watkins Glen specifically. Uh, we have Watkins Glen State Park, which is the second most visited park in New York State. Um, it it reminds me a bit of uh, you know um, Lord of the Rings esque type <laughs> hiking through it. There's there's a series of falls and canyons through the park. It's, it's amazing. Um, there's a, a slew of wineries and breweries now on Seneca Lake. There's also um, Watkins Glen International Racetrack, which hosts, um, you know, NASCAR and things that I don't necessarily get into, but it brings a, a huge variety of people through the area. So it's a really fun place to go. Um, yeah, I think that's like one of the things that's so interesting about New York State agriculture is depending if you're on like the east side or the west side, where you are in the state, the the, the regions are look look really different and there's lots of different types of production here. And I'm, I think, you know, if you look across the country, especially in the wine industry, different states have really kind of invested in supporting that in different ways. And I'm wondering, you know, what your sense is as how how different it is to be a winemaker in New York versus, you know, Virginia or Missouri or California. Yeah. Like what are they, you know, what have they done for you lately? Well, <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I always look at, at wine regions by the varietals that they grow and they're grown there for a reason. For example, in the Northeast, we grew, we grow cool climate loving grapes because that's essentially what we have. Our, our growing season shorter than we would find in, in hotter climates, Virginia uh, being a good example, they grow um, their predominant grapes, Viognier. Um, they also have Norton, which is a more local variety that they, they, they're successful with. Neither, neither grape can you do very well in the Finger Lakes, although Vignola is grown, or excuse me, Viognier is grown in the Finger Lakes. Um, and then you look at California that has a really long growing season. It's almost an unfair growing season for the rest of the world. Um, so they grow a lot of hot climate grapes, Cabernet Sauvignon and, uh, you know, Zinfandel uh, being prime examples. We stick to grapes that, that we can 
confidently grow and produce wines out of. Uh, Riesling is, is, is really king in the Finger Lakes. Chardonnay, Grunewaldliner, um, I could go on and on, actually. And, and, and what we see as being a, a, a positive from that and what the state and, and uh, local tourism boards are doing for us is they, they've accepted that and they've embraced it. So um, re- actually, yesterday was New York Drinks in New York here in the city, um, and, and one of the main focuses was Riesling, which is exciting to see. Um, there are an infinite amount of styles of Rieslings. A, a lot of people associate it with sweeter wines, but you can, you can have a bone-dry Riesling to a sickeningly sweet Riesling, whatever your palate prefers, and the Finger Lakes does a wonderful job producing all of them. So. All of I, I feel like that was a um, the Riesling movement uh, started a little bit by a restaurant, a wine bar called Terroir, uh, where they do like a big focus on Riesling every year. And I always remember it because one of the things they do is they give these like, um, uh, you know, press on tattoos that are huge. So all of a sudden you're like walking around this and you're seeing all these people with like Riesling tattooed across <laughs> yeah. like their arm yes. or up their leg or around their shoulder. And I'm like, what? What? What's going on? <laughs> well, and the spectrum of, of styles in Riesling is so clear. And I know for me that it was one of the first wines that, and maybe it was just, I'm sure there was like an industry push, be, you know, this was not a totally like organic thing, but like, you know, it was one of the first wines that I kind of like learned, learned about wine through because it does express itself in so many different ways. Yeah. I think that's a pretty fair statement to make, um, you know. The traditional thought behind people getting into wines is they, they, they find a sweet wine, they really like it, and as they start uh, advancing their palate, they get into drier wines. I don't, I don't always necessarily agree with that. I think you, you, you're, you're going to like what you like. There's no preconceived notion to being a sweet wine drinker or a dry wine drinker, but that's the benefit of Riesling. And uh, you, know, you have uh, styles to basically um, accompany all palates, which is really nice. Unlike... You know your your drier Bordeaux varietals or or uh, your you know drier Burgundy varietals that that really specifically a- appeal to a, a very finite market, which isn't a bad thing. Right, it's just different. It's right? just different. I like reason it's good for people like me, like the moody wine drinker, where I'm just like <laughs> depending on what's going on. So last week we had on um, an Italian uh, olive oil producer, uh, Lorenzo Caponetti, uh, who is out um, doing an olive oil dinner here in the city. And one of the things that was really interesting chatting with him is his farm is set on the site of all these Etruscan ruins. And so we were really talking a lot about um, thinking about being a steward of the land. There's some there's some actual features on his property that were built like 2,700 years ago that are still functioning as like water collecting devices and other things that are useful to the farm today. And I think that's one of the things that I find interesting about wine, too, from an agriculture perspective, is you're really tending to a super long-term crop. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the tension there of, you know, making decisions for this season versus making decisions for, like, the lifetime of your work, kind of stewarding that space. You know, uh, talking from a viticultural standpoint, when you when you're considering planting a site you need to consider what what the market is going to bear or what the market wants five years from now not necessarily what you're planting now um and then you you take that information or you make that guess and then you also try and plant it to you know the soil type that you have 
the the microclimate that's there. You know, in the Northeast, um, you can have a, a one to two to even a five degree temperature shift um, within a couple hundred yards from each other. Little pockets, you know, that dip down. That's where cold weather settles, and you could plant. Uh, a grape that that is perfect for the soil type that can't take that cold temperature and you've made a drastic mistake so there's a lot of variables that, that come into play in the finger lakes for for planting grapes specifically that may not be in other areas but you're right about being a steward of the land and trying to plant something that that will be there for a long term you know it's a massive investment to plant these these vineyards in the first place um and and you know again soil type takes into a large play um what what the market wants from us is is probably the main thing to be honest with you. Sure. Um, and then after that, you know, we, we try and we try and keep our vineyards going through some pretty um, non invasive methods. We specifically at Lakewood compost all of our own uh, grape leaves, so all of the sediment that we that we produce during harvest, we we compost and blow back out in the vineyards. Um, we roll out straw for for compost as well. Um, at the winery specifically, we, we also use uh, solar to a large degree. About 90% of our production needs are met by solar. Um, and we were one of the first wineries actually in the Finger Lakes to do that, although now in the Finger Lakes, a, a large majority of the wineries are switching to solar. So it's nice to see. Yeah. Um, what do you think, like, what are kind of the threats to the industry in, in that in that region? I mean, what are the things that are kind of keeping you up at night? Um. You know, we we produce a really large variety of, of wines and high quality wines that we have to you know recoup at a certain price point. Right. And on the global market, when we're trying to compete on the global market, we're not always at the same price point as other nations bringing in wines that maybe you know. Um, propped up by a government or, or something of that nature. So at that, you know, we're at a disadvantage in that, in that, uh, arena sometimes, although I think wine quality, uh, ultimately wins out. Um, not that they're producing a poor quality wine. Um, no, but people kind of take, you know, you taste what's in the glass and they'll yeah. make a decision there. Right. Um, I, I would say the other, the other main thing for us, right now is just so that we don't get oversaturated as a market. You know, as I said a, a little while ago, we have over 100 wineries in the Finger Lakes. Um, we want to make sure that when folks come to visit us that they get the, the vistas that I was talking about and they don't see winery after winery or, you know, building after building. Because right. that's, you know, you're coming from a, a place like that and trying to get away from it. So we're aware of that and we don't want to see that change too much. Really looking at kind of the land conservation and scenic, like that yeah. kind of work. Is and that what uh, you mean? Or? Yeah, I do that in a uh, sustainable development, you know, mm -hmm. trying to, trying to be more uh, aware of what goes where right. um, in the area as a whole. So, but ultimately I, uh, not too much keeps me awake about our industry. I'm excited about Good. our industry and I think we're on a really nice upward trend. I think uh, uh, people are excited to come to the Finger Lakes. They're excited to try the wines. Um, I don't think I've ever met an angry, upset person in my industry in the Finger Lakes. Everybody's in a great mood all the time, and that speaks <laughs> volumes, you know? Yeah. So it's a great place to be. That's a, I guess I was. that's the other thing I feel like, um, you know, people who work in, in the wine industry, when you think about um, professional development, 
and and with that you're like I gotta go you know take some trips to other places and taste some wine and like hang out and wondering like how do you stay kind of up on you said you know one of the things you have to do is kind of predict the market like what are the tools for kind of keeping your finger on the pulse of like what people are drinking? Like, where are you looking for that type of information without giving it away? Any yeah, no, um, <laughs> you know, truth be told, I think the, the large majority of that information comes from the clients that come in our front door. Yeah. You know, we have the, we, we at Lakewood specifically can see up to 1200 people on a Saturday in our tasting room and they all want to share information. They all want to learn from us, but we also want to learn from them. Um, it's, it's a great give and take there. Um, so when somebody says, I'm really into Sauvignon Blanc 80,000 times, you have an idea of what, <laughs> what maybe the market is bearing. Like, but oh, maybe I should pay attention here. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, Cornell uh, is, is right in our backyard there in Ithaca. Um, and they've done an excellent job working with the wine industry in the Finger Lakes and helping us, guiding us in a direction that, that uh, is successful for both Cornell and, and the wine region. Um, so we get a lot of information from them. Um, but ultimately I would say the, you know, the consumer, the consumer that we see directs our, our attention more than anything else. So what about, um, industry consumers? Where are you selling some of your wines in restaurants or retailers? Yeah. Um, we, we have a pretty good market right now in New York state. Um, we're in, I would dare say over 50%, if not more of the, uh, liquor stores in the state, a pretty large variety of, of restaurants as well. New York City is a market that that we have a, a some representation. If I made uh, Whole Foods, we're we're in Whole Foods and um, Astoria Wines and Spirits locally. Um, but you know, New York City is also a, a nut that's hard to crack for us. To be quite honest, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of places that, that that we're trying to figure out where to go and and what to do, and, and we're excited by that. Um, we're excited to, to to branch out further into this market. So, but it, it, uh, upstate, we have a, a phenomenal representation. So, yeah, I, I would have to imagine that people are com- there's a lot of people coming to New York to show show their wines. Yeah, very very much so. And, and you know, being a, I would I would guess being a psalm in in New York City is uh is a daunting task in that regard. I mean a, a a fun task but daunting at the same time. So, I I understand where they're coming from. Um but again, you know, we feel like we're producing a, a not just Lakewood, but the Finger Lakes as a whole, we're producing world-class Rieslings. That's been proven. Right. Um, and I think that the New York market is starting to pick up on that. As well as another grape called Lamberger, which is becoming very popular. Lamberger? Lamberger. Another name for it is Blafrankisch. It's an Austrian varietal that grows very well in the Finger Lakes. It's becoming very popular. So, um, You heard it here. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first on the farm report. <laughs> Flint corn and Lamberger. That's right. That's it's a great combo. The title of today's show. <laughs> <laughs> Get it while it's hot. Uh, <laughs> or like nicely chilled. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 62 light, A little light chill on that. Yeah, yeah just a touch. <laughs> chill the Riesling, though. You'll like it much better. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chad. This was great. And i uh, so excited to learn more about Liquid Vineyards. And um, is there anywhere people can find out more about your business? Yeah, we have we have a website. Just, you know, type in Liquid Vineyards under the, you know, good old Google and it'll take you right to us. Um just for everyone's reference, we're open seven days a week, almost year round, and we're always excited to see you come through our door. So, we'd love to have you, and the Finger Lakes would love to have you as well. So, 
Oh, well, there we go. What a wonderful invitation. Thanks for everyone's time. Guys, you made it through another episode of the Farm Report. Charlie and I batting batting, uh, 0 for 2 with the smooth transitions. But we're going to take you out on a high note. Um, Big thanks uh, for everyone out there listening. Uh, This show, of course, like all 34 of our weekly programs, is available for free. Uh, You can find us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you like to get your podcasts. The the Heritage uh, Radio Network crew is down in Charleston this past weekend doing a lot of uh, live recording from the Wine and Food Festival down there. So check out some of those if you want to get uh, a little bit of inside intel on what was happening in Charleston and, and the southern region. Um, look for those. And you can never miss uh, exciting opportunities like that by signing up for the newsletter. Just uh, visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.com. Dot org. And while you're there, click that beating heart, toss us a couple of bucks. We are completely funded by the support of listeners like you and our great underwriters, um, like Whole Foods, where you can get some delicious New York State wine. <laughs> and of course, a big thank you to Bob's Red Mill, our new flagship sponsor. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, everyone. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.